What is up, everyone? This is Kyle here with Free Speech Geek. We are back from Comic-Con, and I wanted to give you a glimpse into what we saw this weekend. In this episode, we follow Janice Chang. Janice Chang is an American comic book letterer with over 30 years of experience. She broke out in the mid-70s freelancing for Marvel Comics. She also works with Stan Lee's POW Entertainment, as well as John Carpenter's Asylum. So without further ado, please enjoy this spotlight with Janice Chang. Good afternoon, I'm Laura Jones, the Operations and Programming Coordinator for Comic-Con International, and I'm so pleased to be here today to celebrate the career of special guest Janice Chang. I think there is such a beauty in comics of making something really hard look really easy, and making something really dynamic, uh, and it's just such a powerful, and I think as people who love comics, you know the power of words. And there's no one who knows that power better than Janice Chang. Um, she's, her hands are and skills are unparalleled. Um, and it's such an honor to have her here. Her career, I mean, the people that she's worked with, the work that she's done, I feel like you guys know you're here. It, it's beautiful and powerful and, and it's impactful. And at a time when, I, I feel like I can't say enough just about the beauty of it. And uh, so, Sorry. But, uh, so on behalf of Comic Con International and its board of directors, it's my honor to present this Inkpot Award to James Chang. This is for all of us. The whole community. I'm just one person. But thank you. I met Janice exactly a year ago at Comic-Con. She was on my Asian representation panel, and I got to meet her briefly. Just, just, like, can't hear it too well. I always have that problem not speaking to my so, so we got to chatting, and I, I've learned quite a bit since, since the last Comic-Con. And I'm so happy to be here to talk about her life and experiences throughout her Career. <laughs> 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 so, um, the the thought ballooning over me is like probably too much information. <laughs> Good. So yeah, I guess we'll just we'll get right into it. You know, comics have been a huge part of popular culture for as long as anyone in here can probably remember. And you've you've been in it since as long as I know. Um, when you think of big names in the comic industry, it's usually the artists and the writers, but one of the most unsung heroes of the industry are probably the letters. So how did you, can you tell us how you got into the industry? And, yeah. Okay. <laughs> how I began in the industry it was an accident. I needed a job. So actually, um, comic lettering found me. I wasn't looking for it. So Larry Hama and Ralph Reese, were my mentors in the beginning. They told me, taught me the fundamentals of lettering, you know, what tools, the style. Um, and the best advice I was given was like, look at what's been printed or what came before you and see what you like and imitate it, you know, to figure out what style you want to create. So um, I 
began my uh, journey at Neil Adams Continuity Studios, where we've had many great artists come out, like Frank Miller. You know, every major artist probably had gone through there. So Sergi Argonis was there. And um, I'm someone with tunnel vision. So whenever they gave me an assignment to practice, uh, I would do it. And I'd run straight to Ralph and, you know, uh, Larry's office, and I'd run out. So here's later people like Bob Wyacek and Terry Austin said to me, yeah, we were at, you know, continuity when you were there. I said, I didn't notice you. <laughs> the worst thing to say to a guy, right? Because, <laughs> you know, I was learning and I, I take care of my business. But my background is in fine arts. And even before that, uh, when I was younger, my father was really great at building things and, and uh, welding. He had like, very good design skills. My mother was very good with handcrafts and such. So we learned those skills and, and art. So um, this is a story I'd love to tell. When we were younger, uh, we started with a power drill. When we were 11 years old, we got the circular saw. You know, the blade that spins? So I, I'm thinking, yeah, I must have weighed 70 pounds of that saw. So our parents empowered us, that's what I'm saying. So uh, I know a lot of people say, what's it like to be a woman in the comic industry? Yeah, we get special treatment, but we know where we're going. And that's why I'm here today. <laughs> well, you know, I think the main thing is, um, I was mentored by um, the men in the bullpen, Dane Crespi, Mori Kiramoto, um, uh, John Ramita. And these men, uh, their families survived the Depression, and they all served in World War II. So when they came back from war, they knew what was important. And when I came into the marble bullpen to learn production skills and letter correction and such, they treated me as a professional. They were never demeaning. They wanted me to succeed. So how I began lettering, like, these are the first two issues that went to publication. So you learn by making corrections. Then Danny Crespi would give me a page or two to letter, you know, to get the feel. And finally, um, I got two whole issues uh, to, to do by myself. So that Black Panther page, um, Billy Graham is an artist and uh, uh, Don McGregor the writer. So what happened was uh, Billy had penciled the lettering and I had to, you know, put in the script. So when I saw the, the design, you know the caption that shoots in perspective? I said, it can't be a regular rectangle. It's telling me to go that way. And I was sweating. I said, oh no, they're going to yell at me. I've never seen anybody make a caption like that. But I'm going to do it because, you know, that's true to me. And then on the rocks is where you put the uh, credits. So I didn't see this again until the Black Panther movie came out. And there was an article about Billy Graham and his life. And they used it as like a sample of, of his uh, work. I saw that caption shape. I said, <laughs> Then, you know, sharp me looks at the rock. I said, oh, okay, I did it. <laughs> but um, anyway, so what happened was I spent a year at continuity and into the marble bullpen. But, you know, the current events, events of the time the Vietnam War was going on, uh, the women's liberation movement, and as an Asian American in this country, born during the cold years, it was a difficult upbringing because of uh, the racism. And uh, if you just look at World War II, 
Oh, you could scroll. Scroll. Oh, so during World War II, the Japanese people were interned because they were the enemy of country. But these were businessmen, you know, everyday citizens who had no connection to, you know, nefarious deeds. That's a favorite word to describe Asian or nefarious. <laughs> you know, we're like Fumanchu in the miniature. Um, so my mother said to me, uh, that's my mom when she's 18. That's my father, upper left, um, when they were here in America. And that's my mom and dad with their good friends. So my parents would say to me, don't make waves. You know, don't be naive. The internment camps are warm and ready for us if during the Cold War, you know, China turns on the United States. So, you know, when you give me those parameters, all you can do is like really focus on your academic and artistic work. So, you know, we were model students coming through. Oh, this is, um, we grew up in the back of a hand laundry because that was one of the few occupations the Chinese were allowed to earn a living with. So, um, even though, you know, oh, this is my parents bought the building across the street. <laughs> and we got a real apartment. And behind the store, there was no bathroom with a bath. So I remember my mother bathing me in the sink. And then years later, it's like, how did they bathe? With a bucket? I don't know. You know, so you come from family that, you know, the odds against you. And you make do, you be creative, and you survive. So those are valuable lessons when it came into our industry where, when it was male-dominated. And when I entered it in the 70s, it is like a guilt system, but I thought it was like so divorced from reality, you know, because a lot of the women were taught the lettering and um, coloring skills, but not like drawing really or writing. And I'm thinking it's like, Isn't it, aren't the guys reading the newspapers? You know, there's something going on. <laughs> women are doing more things. It's like, so I, I left on my journey. <laughs> This is uh, uh, Yuri Koshiyama. She's a famous activist. Um, her family was interned. And a lot of times, what happened, a lot of families lost all their property and was seized by the government in California. So a, lot of, a group of um, Japanese American citizens, their husbands served in the army in, in that famous unit. Uh, they went east. They couldn't stay in California. So Mary Kochiyama became an activist um, with civil rights, with all kinds of issues. And this, that's my older sister, Faye Chang. She was a well-known uh, poet and activist. And that, that drew me into you know, uh, student organizing, protesting the war, Vietnam War. This is from a, a protest in San Francisco. So across the country, Asian people were saying, you know, watching the news about Vietnam, like, it's like, they're just killing people that look like me without, you know, remorse, you know, strafing us, bombing us, as if we were not human. Because that's the thing about racism. You make them the other and take away the human qualities. So a lot of students uh, began organizing on campus, you can hold it there, and, uh, you know, fighting for, you know, third world studies to be recognized. So now we have a um, Asian American Pacific Islander department in NYU, um, which my sister, you know, was like a founding member from the original struggles. So this, these photos are from our struggle of 
students, professionals, bringing the civil rights movement into Chinatown in the 70s. So that's when I met my husband, Danny. <laughs> no, we did not greet in a restaurant. We met through organizing protests. So our first big um, uh, effort was to have uh, Asian and black and Puerto Rican construction workers hired in this giant uh, federally funded building in the middle of Chinatown called Confucius Plaza. So it was contracted to someone named Dematis and his, his own crew. And we're saying, look, you raise three blocks of tenements, you're building this here, and we can't have jobs and work on the site. So this group um, of Puerto Rican and black construction workers came from Brooklyn to teach us how, how to do that. So when you go out, call it a shakedown, you close the site. So as soon as somebody not um, uh, allowed on site that's part of the crew, they have to close it down for safety reasons. So one time Danny said he climbed on a crane and the guy said, thank you, I don't want to work today. <laughs> so it went on for a month and they finally capitulated. They gave us 35 jobs on site. And from that struggle, we struggled to get a police department that reflected the community. We had no one speaking the language that were policemen. So of course we'd get beat up and arrested all the time. So, um, oh, in the photo, if you look carefully, Dr. Michi, Michio Kaku, a hyperspace, that <laughs> was a big um, participant in the struggle. So, you know, we had all, all sectors of the population, all professions coming together because we were so inspired by the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King that it's like, it's our time. You know, it happened in the 60s, 70s, we're going to do it. So, um, so, you know, we didn't have social media back then, right? So how do you spread the word? Word of mouth, telephone calls, knocking on doors. So um, we had an organization, nonprofit organization called Basin Workshop, and Larry Hama was one of the founding members, as well as my sister. So my family, we were like ducks in a row. Where, where Faye went, we followed. <laughs> so when she went to Hunter College, we all followed. When Faye went into the student senate, we all went and became student senators. And that gave me like a really good um, idea of like the power of one, the power of men. So these posters are related to the struggles when we would mobilize people for certain issues like getting uh, board members from the community, a friend Janice Wong was running. So you can see the comic lettering influence, right? So that's where I took my comic lettering skills into the streets. And um, these still three posters were, I cut the stencils or we did the, or I did the photo silk screen. So um, we would get a crew at the uh, basement workshop, we ended our, uh, our day. We would come and screen, we would drive. The next night we would have our postering teams go out. Um, so this poster with the illustration and some other works, I collaborated with Hart Sweet, who became a famous um, new wave Hong Kong director, director of martial arts films, if anyone knows that genre. So talking about full circle, when I started working with uh, John and Sandy Carpenter, I kept saying, I really love big trouble in little China, because people look like me. They weren't caricatures. And Sandy said, my God, we had to fight them to get authentic martial art uh, experts, you know, people who couldn't do martial arts to be in the film. They wanted people to do yellow face. Yeah. 
to be the actors. Um, so I was watching a director's cut on DVD and he said, here, heart sweet, you know, I love his stuff. You know, I was doing the um, research and I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> that's my friend. <laughs> and here I am, it's like, who would have guessed? But anyway, um, so we'd get post-string teams out and we would use <laughs> like diluted cornstarch <laughs> or paste and we stuck it everywhere, you know, Chinatown, Lowly Side. Um, so this is a police brutality uh, demonstration. A young architect named uh, Peter Yu was waiting on the end of Mott Street in um, the Bowery. And uh, this policeman said, came park there and said, I'm waiting for my mother to bring the groceries. And he pulled him out and beat him really bad. He lost the hearing in one ear. And it's like, enough is enough. So this demonstration, um, the whole community shut down garment workers, they were let out of the factories, and everybody just like took to the street. So we closed down Broadway, you know where the Yankees come down when they win? So we're standing in Broadway, it's like, come on, we're ready to fight. <laughs> Even the, the Tongs, the gang kids, <laughs> everybody was out. So that was a, one of the posters, and that's a call to you know gather and, and work on that demonstration. Um, you, you have to time me, or, know, or, or Danny should yeah. go like this to me. <laughs> so, after such an eventful career outside of comics, what was it like getting back into the comic industry? Well, the main <laughs> the main reason was my son Calvin. He was born, so we were saying, "Well, how are we going to raise him?" It's like, "Okay, let me go back to comic lettering, see if they remember me." And uh, Danny Cressy was really happy to have me back, and I worked on staff to start. And then I found out you could freelance, you could work at home. I said, really? I'm coming home. <laughs> so, um, you know, because we had no Federal Express pickup until like noon that day, I would start my day midnight. So I was sort of like on a six hour different time zone from everyone else. <laughs> so um, I had to relearn the skill in terms of the actual uh, the rhythm, the pace, the breathing, the materials. So the first book, Louise Simonson uh, assigned to me. And I was so happy because she was the first woman editor I encountered. So Louise was really encouraging. And the first, um, the artist was John Buscema, who draws like a Renaissance artist. And I was like, why'd you give me John? So I was so nervous, I penciled the lettering and came back and inked it. So each page took two hours and it's like, I'm not going to earn a living this way. We had, wait a minute, we have pro white. And I, we, we called the snowflake. I could, you know, clean the mistakes and be lighter, which other people did. So the second job was a little faster. I said, like, okay, we're going down. So it was fine. You know, all the years of, you know, art training and such um, kicked in. So the, a lot of these um, covers are like series I've worked on. and. Um, Conan, Red Sonja, Transformers. I did the first run, Transformers. That Transformer balloon with the, the electric thing I created. Um, Thundercats. You know, what happened is like, Marvel was asked by these toy companies to create books, introduce them to the children, right? So um, they would send the toys for references. And because Calvin was a kid, you know, Danny would always <laughs> send toys to Calvin. And, um, you know, what really, 
you know, I know he loved it. All the kids loved it. I even had the dino, dino, dinosaur on his feet because I liked him. So what was really sweet is when Jean uh, Luen Yang wrote American Born Chinese, he has a scene where they're all playing in front of the television, the Transformers, and then the copy is like, and the toys were all covered in spit because we were making the sound effect. And I just laughed. I said, that's my house. Cal was like, and then I realized, you know, Gene grew up in California and we're on the East Coast. I said, across the country, same time from the cartoon, the kids are playing with the toys. So uh, this is a side. I'm just so proud of Gene Luen Yang, you know, what he's bringing to our industry and the understanding of our creative abilities. Um, so I did Master Kung Fu. So when I was lettering that, um, his dad was Fu Manchu, right? So I was a little upset about that stereotype being perpetuated. But I, I had gotten a copy recently, because you know what I see is I get the artwork. I letter it and it goes to the inker. So a lot of time, I don't see the finished book. So there's a, there's a disclaimer that, saying that you know we don't believe that you know people, you know Asian people are evil basically. And I never read that because I never saw the whole book. So I felt better about that. <laughs> I think Larry was one of the first guys to dispute the yellow coloring of the yes. agents in mm -hmm. comics, right? Yes. Larry said, we're flesh tone, thank you. We're not yellow, per se. So I did uh, Bill Sienkiewicz's uh, first professional job, Moon Knight. So I was really lucky, a lot of our well-known pros, I was on their first run books. Tasha them in the industry. You've been doing it for so long. You started when it was a hand-baked skill, and with the introduction of computers and making them an everyday thing, what was it like transitioning from a hand skill to computer digital? Well, you know, I was not, you, I guess you can roll down. Um, I was not familiar with a computer, and uh, I had the worst sense of direction. <laughs> you go left, I go right. So I was like, oh no, I gotta figure this one out. So at that time, you know, computers, there was no genius bar. There was no Adobe help, like, clues. You had a manual, and all the knowledge was in the white line between the copy. So among ourselves, you know, we would call, and have you seen this? How do you do that? So that's how we taught each other. And my good friend, uh, John Babcock, brought together hand letters who didn't translate their hand lettering uh, styles into digital fonts. He taught us like the fundamentals. So I owe him my foray into digital work. So, you know, while I was catching up, four people plagiarized my work. So I know I'm good if they want to steal it. And what, imitation is great for my No, not for me. <laughs> But you know, it's like when that happened, you know, people said, oh, you should sue this and that. I said, no, I knew that I'd have to create a digital body of comic lettering to have some legs to stand on. That's why I'm here today. <laughs> and I don't see anyone in the audience. <laughs> you've, worked, you've worked through some of the most pivotal times in the comic industry. You know, the 90s was pretty rough. It was for, layoffs. You know, all the layoffs. So how did you navigate your way well, to keep you staying relevant? Um, what Marvel, what happened was um, early on, um, they started getting contracts, letterers, and colorists. 
So when I was um, beginning lettering, you know, my son was very young, and you know, I would leave, um, I would white out things that I had to come back and correct, which I didn't. So one senior letter complained, and she called me and said, uh, if you don't prove, we can't use you. So when Kang Tao entered contracts, that was stuck in his head. Like, I was not good enough. So when someone tells me I'm not good enough, I just go to somebody who will appreciate what I do. So that was the best favor ever, because I made all these connections to like DC and um, any company that would employ me. So when there were massive layoffs, I had networked already. I didn't have to hang on to whoever was left at Marvel and beg, you know, for work. I was like, okay, there's none here, I'll go ask so-and-so. And my friend um, did an interview to do with Marvel Fanfare, I think that magazine was, that featured me. So I sent that copy, sent the sample, Dark Horse, and that got me um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the first series they gave to me. So, you know, it's like, being resourceful came from our childhood. Not crying about it is a waste of time. So you problem solve. And um, the best thing is like asking. I've heard no before. <laughs> I have, at the same time I heard yes. So, you know, it's, I encourage everybody to take chances. You know, within reason, don't do anything dangerous. But, you know, don't be shy. And I think what really helped me was I kept my private life very private. And my business self. That's the one that songs and you know, sings and dance will work. But you know, you know, I only keep people who keep me strong close to me. Anybody who wants to demean or berate me, it's like go find somebody else to pick on. I was like, not going to work here. Um, you know, so as I was going through, you know, covers of uh, series I done, I realized I did the first issue where Venom shows up. It's like. And what, what it is now, the major movie franchises. So even though letters are not brought to the forefront as you know, writers or artists, it's like, you're not gonna read the reference material if I didn't do it. So I know you know me, and I know that too, that's good enough. People know your work. It's, it's so yeah, that's good enough. <laughs> work with some of the titans of the industry. When networking is a huge part. Um, do you have any advice to give to any creators who are trying to make it in the industry? The main thing, what I was fortunate was, um, well, being professional is the number one uh, advice. If you take a deadline, make a commitment, come through. Don't like do half of it and pass it on so I can't finish it. It's like giving someone a half-eaten sandwich. Do I want to eat it? I don't think so. But, <laughs> so being professional, you know, know your workload, because somebody else can do it. Somebody else needs work. Um, so I follow that principle, so my reputation is solid. Um, so I was able to you know, have that history with people, because a lot of us got laid off from Marvel, went to different companies, or did a completely different um, livelihoods. So, because um, I had the good relationships, I could find out where people were. And social, you know, Facebook saved my career. You know, basically I saw people post about their work, where they were working, and I would message them, or and I started attending conventions. So I would do, you know, my own research in terms of who's out there, who's at this company, and introduce myself and say, "Do you need a letter?" But was what was difficult during hand lettering with digital was a lot of major companies created their own internal lettering departments where they had a staff, and they didn't use freelancers. So where do you go from there? So the other thing is um, a lot of us accept private clients. 
And I had a lot of good friends come out of come out of the era I never met. They said so and so said you can handle it. It's like okay. And then I remember when LinkedIn happened, Larry Larry really said, get on LinkedIn, you know. So um, I had gotten some work through there. And my good friend Kim Kartak is doing really well. A book, um, a series, he told me, uh, you should check it out. Um, it's a really exciting future. He gave me really good news. And I'm so proud of him. I said, Yunkar, how long has it been since you graduated NYU film school? So he goes, like 15 years? I go, that's how long it took. So time needs time. That's the other advice I would tell people. And the other advice is take care of your physical being. So when I started lettering, you know, it's like you're sitting there 10 hours a day. Um, so I said, uh, I've got to exercise because by nature, I'm very active. So we started, my husband and I started training in gym 40 years ago. So we go four days a week. Oh, I can't sit still. I can't sit still. No, it's just for me. That's my playground. <laughs> and we garden a lot, so I get to dig the holes. <laughs> so where we live, it's full of rocks. But I'm excited about any creative problem solving, because when you dig a rock, if you get four, three corners, plus your mind, I can get you out. <laughs> but um, anyway. Yeah, so, so speaking of making an impact in the industry, you've worked on some of the most influential and key comics that have happened in the early history. Uh, can you tell us if there's any specific moments that you remember? Well, or? Um, Alpha Flight, when North Star comes out as gay. Um, and the way it comes out is, uh, it was during the HIV crisis pandemic, and he's holding a baby and he said, I'm in the same position as you. Do you remember that panel, Bobby? And um, Chris Cooper, a good friend, um, people know him as a birder in Central Park, where that woman tried to call the police to kill him. Yeah, so Chris helped shepherd that storyline and my wonderful editor, Bobby Chase. <laughs> about someone else's life, their experience, and the wisdom they gain. Um, yeah, I find that exciting. You know, working on the first master of Kung Fu, to working on Jean Wen Yang's Shang-Chi, what other kind of different things Se have you Yeah, segways are... Well, you know, what, what was really exciting was like, when I was like going to conventions, my first San Diego Comic-Con was um, 2009. Kevin, you playing like Shattered? Shattered? It was 2009. And before I came, uh, some friends, Michelle Wrightson and Hillary Stanton, it's like, oh my God, it's a matter of house, don't go. Bam. You, you gotta scroll down. Um, so, here. So, anyway, um, that was a collection of uh, Asian American creators. Uh, let's see, was it Jeff Yang and uh, Keith Chow? Uh, Parry Shen, and um, there's like a fourth um, about Jerry Ma. So anyway, um, these young professionals, which I didn't know about because I was outside the industry, um, Larry was supposed to do something, but commitment stopped him. So um, I heard about the book, I Googled it, and I found out they were having a presentation when it was just printed in an uh, auditorium uh, owned by Warner Brothers. So Cam and I went down there to hear what was going on with my people were <laughs> sort of sitting there and then, you know, you buy a book and have people sign it, so I bought it. So I went up and I introduced myself and people were like, you're Janice Chang. <laughs> I was like, oh, what I do? <laughs> so, 
So they said, no, you know what, we saw your name, we saw Larry's name, we saw Jim Lee's name. That meant the doors open. They would accept us. So, you know, I met, you know, many uh, building creators that day. So um, they had a signing for San Diego Comic Con 2009 at Jerry Ma's uh, booth where you selling the shirts and stuff. And that's where I met Jim Luen Yang and Sunny Lu together. They were doing their signing. So Keith Chow took a photo of us. That's like a historic photo. Because after that, we collaborated on the Shadow Hero. And then later on, when uh, Gene was writing for DC and did the interpretation of the radio program about Superman smashing his planes, I led that series up. Uh, we won like two or three Eisners and best lists everywhere. So, you know, whenever Gene and I can, can collaborate, we do. Uh, we did the Monkey Prince series. I think that's the next one. That would be great one. Yeah, Monkey Prince series. Uh, Bernard Chang as a, here he is, as a principal artist. Um, right now I'm working in Spirit World with Sank as a non-binary character. She's she can go between the living and the dead world because she died. So, you know, it's really interesting. It's like um, using our, uh, our mythology, um, our customs to introduce it to a broader audience and it's really entertaining. I'm having a lot of fun with that. Um, Ask me questions because I ramble. I said, I said, like Danny so. should go like this, or he should ask a question. Well, I think any time I'll let you. <laughs> like, you have so many great stories. Well, I guess I need another panel. I don't know. Continuation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, part B. <laughs> representation is more important than ever now, especially with all the movies, the TV shows, the comics, as you can see. Now, where do you think we go from here with that? I think we just go up. You know, um, what's great about our industry is we can tell stories, either historical. You know, I was talking to Larry. Tokyo Road Zero Hour, um, I worked with um, Andrea Fortino and uh, Kate Tassano. So, are people familiar with the story? You know, Tokyo Road was an American citizen got caught in Tokyo because she was going to visit and help out relatives when Pearl Harbor happened, so she couldn't come home. Um, so she was taking language classes, she wasn't that fluent. So the Japanese propaganda department recruited her and other women. They wanted to demoralize, demoralize American soldiers by like having a temptress do a radio show. But uh, Tokyo, I mean, Eva Tagori loved American music. So her program, she, she brought records from home and a record player, she would play the music and you know, you know, made smart, smart remarks. So, you know, the American um, military, they loved it. Because for them, it was entertaining, it was not demoralizing. Because, you know, the, the Japanese commanders are saying, yeah, you know, when they hear her voice on this, their family at home, and, um, you know, they won't fight as hard because they want to go home instead of be here. So after the war, um, she was tried as a traitor and served seven years in jail. But, um, during her stint as Tokyo Rose, she met um, a lot of other prisoner of wars who were recruited and became good friends. So when she was arrested, and she, she did marry a Portuguese Japanese citizen, but because of the war, the marriage didn't last. So when she was brought to trial, all her friends, you know, from the time she worked the radio program, came to her defense, her character witness, you know, 
to try them, but they railroaded her, and she served seven years. So the son of her lawyer finally got her exonerated and out of jail. You know, it was a family mission, like, you know, this is unjust. So it was great in some, you know, um, Andre got four sensitivity readers to make sure, you know, we would travel as truthfully as possible. So I think good storytelling, you know, it's like with the spirit world, we have an all Asian creator team, which is like, yeah, wait a 50 years for kind of people to show up. But I think, you know, as it all comes, you get the best people together to tell the story. And, you know, we have to appreciate that we can all contribute together. Because, you know, when I learned in community organizing, you need a united front. People who believe in the same thing, have a goal, and they can come from all different streams. You can't just have it like all Chinese people fight for Chinese. <laughs> it's like, look at our country, look at our audience. So um, just in recent years of the polarization, I was thinking, you know, what we have here in the comic community is positive, supportive, and when we go home, we need to bring those, you know, uh, practices and beliefs where we go in our daily lives, because that's the only chance we're going to survive as humankind. And as Mother Nature is teaching us, uh, we better do better. It's climate destruction. But uh, anyway, you know, that's philosophizing. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, those are that's really all the questions I have. You want to open the yeah, let's open up the floor. Questions. Anyone got any? If you don't have it, repeat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, as letterers, uh, who were your your early influences for comics? Because I think you said some, you said something earlier about they told you to kind of choose what you like and imitate it. Yeah. So who Who's did you my like favorite? And my favorite letter is Joe Rosen because he had like a sense of calligraphy. A lot of guys would do like you know printing block lettering, but I felt there's something graceful about it. So. How amazing Joe was is when we had late comics, we had to letter on vellum, which is a heavy tracing paper. So Joe's lettering was like stained glass. No, no correction, white out, like, yeah, that was like a high goal thing before, which I never achieved. <laughs> I'm still learning. <laughs> but, um, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, to keep us faceless, so, uh, you know, during, in this book, uh, Four Fabulous Decades of Marvel, we used to go start a team to show how, you know, it's put together. So I get a call, like, come in, you know, we're going to have a photographer take pictures to show how we work. So my husband goes and gets me a special outfit, because, you know, he has more fashion sense than I do, obviously. And, uh, okay, I get, up, I get dressed up, ready for the shoot. Uh, I didn't tell him what happened. The book came home, and all they showed him was my hand holding the pen. So oh. <laughs> like, like the thing, right? So Danny goes, they think so-and-so looks better than you. He was obsessed, and I was like, whatever. I'm, you know, as long as I'm creating, I'm happy. You know, it was only after, you know, the internet in 2008, they actually saw my face, because Fred Hendrick took a picture of me in New York. Oh, God. <laughs> But you know, it's like, I feel that it goes back to invisible and invisible. So I think of Doctor Strange. It's like, oh, I have a cloak of invisibility and I'll lose it to my advantage. <laughs> it's not a negative, you know? You've seen lettering evolve a lot just within your professional career. It's gone from a, a hand-drawn art style to 
Uh, getting uglier. <laughs> you know, um, I work with uh, Sandy King and John Carpenter for Storm King Comics on the lettering department. So the fonts I used are based on my hand lettering. I've translated them myself digitally. Because I have a sense of the balance, the space, and kerning, the lettering that's uh, native to my hand. So it was really sweet. My friend Andy Price said he was looking at a story I lettered because I know. I said, what do you know? This is closest to hand lettering font I ever seen anywhere out there. I said, thank you, because it's from me. It's not like somebody stole it and like chunked it up. You know, I actually went through the pain of the way changes, the height, the current, where I feel it's like, that's me, you know? So the way I letter, I letter in um, Illustrator, and I go in the distort window. So every letter, um, because I define sound effect fonts also. So I distort them. And as in um, hand lettering, you make the sound effect flow with the art. You don't fight the art. You don't slap it like uh, you're pasting it on. So I actually, every sound effect, I do it as if I'm hand drawing. So the biggest transition from hand to digital, I define analogous tool to my hand tools digitally. So. Um, I think I have the most organic, that's why I go for organic style. Because as an artist, I can appreciate what the artists do and the color art, and I want to honor that. So let me talk quickly about the mechanics or what I'm looking at when I'm lettering. So I read the art directions, I read the script, I look at the art, with how the artist actually interpreted it. So my job is to make sure to lead the reader in the correct sequence of speakers and such. So I look for dead space that somewhere is not really vital to the art or layout. And the pet peeve is um, a lot of letters, you know, they're not reading the chroma and hue of the color design. And they'll cover a light source of balloon. It's like, that makes everything make sense. So, you know, I'm dodging a lot of things to give you a two-fold experience. You can read it firsthand, see the art, stop, come back, look where the art is, and then come back and read the copy. So um, the simplest way is like, I have to represent the 3D world in a 2D dimension. So, you know, like sound effects, sometimes like um, <laughs> I have to, like a horse galloping, it's like clop, clop, and all. <laughs> so, yeah, how, do I, how do I translate? I go to actual sound, I'll, I'll YouTube horse galloping, and then I listen and go, what's it feel like? So that's how I create my sound effects. It's like, or you know, or if you see a panel where somebody's punching something, there could be wham slam or something. Because in real life, there's sound. So I get to create this quote silent soundtrack as Stanley would say it was. So what we do is so close to filmmaking also. And you know, storyboards are created for filmmakers as guides. And they're like comics, <laughs> basically. Okay, are we out of time? Yeah. <laughs> We got five minutes. I think we got time for one more question. Bobby, Nick, help. <laughs> Bobby, Nick. I have people planted here. These are my good friends from uh, Utah. We met on a plane coming to San Diego, and we had the greatest time because it was during, um, you know, when the country was becoming polarized. So on the jumper plane to uh, Salt Lake City, this man sat next to me. A businessman. He treated me like I, I was a rancid piece of meat. His attitude was like, 
so when I got on the next connected flight, I didn't know what to expect, you know. So I meet up with Nick and, and Bobby, and we start chatting. And um, there was a seat between me and uh, Bobby, and so we all got closer. And you know the flight uh, map where you follow the plane? So we expanded it where they showed me where they went to uh, fulfill their mission and the countries they visited. I mean, oh God, it was so much fun. So we've been friends since the plane ride. <laughs> Thank you for coming. No, no, it goes to where I want to be just a person. You know, everyone has a job. It's just a, you know, I'm in print and they collect the data and they have a database. But I think somebody who teaches children, I think they're more important than me. <laughs> you know, so um, that's how you meet interesting people and, and you learn from each other. So thank you so much for coming. I'm honored. <laughs> yeah, I planted them. <laughs> so do you have any questions or? I guess I've just been really enjoying the learning about your history and everything like that that I've never been a part of or anything. And just meeting you has kind of given me the urge to like look into your uh, past and what you've done. And it's just been really entertaining and enjoyable. Thank you. You know, because the community, okay, we have creators, right? On the credit line, we have the, the artist writer, um, editor. No, ink, let's see, who goes, anchor, letter, colors, editor. So people know that a book is created by this team. But thank you. We have the pre production. My son is on staff at DC Comics. Then we have pre press, you know, and then we have marketers, and then we have comic shops, we have distributors. So it's like, a hundred or more people are behind us to promote our projects. So I feel people on the credit line should speak to that and thank them. Because <laughs> like I said, without them, we'd be home jet printing our comics, stapling, and would you like to be my comic? <laughs> That's how I envision if we don't all work together. And as with comic community, let me tell a funny story. So when Justin asked me to be on his panel, I was like, oh, let me check this guy out. Let's talk first. Let me suss him out. So talking, talking. And so what do you do? So, I'm a rocket engineer. I said, okay. <laughs> so when I had the opportunity to do the spotlight panel and he did a moderator, um, my good friend Liz uh, Holder said, she's a, she has a PR business for 20, uh, 20 and more years. And she's the one who held me out more publicly where I'm here. Because she threw my name, her network of contacts. And people contacted me about doing podcasts and interviews where people see me speak. Because up to then, I'm this, right? <laughs> that hand, right? <laughs> so uh, anyway, um, I just lost my train of thought. We got to chatting about doing the panel. And oh, yeah. So anyway, so listen, you know, one tact is get a big name moderator to attract people. So she goes, what big name do you know? It's like, OK, how about Larry Hama? <laughs> and it's like, because I've known him since I was 13, so he's my big brother. So I called Larry, and he said, yeah, Hasbro's flying me out, because I did 300 issues of G.I. Joe. So they wanted me to do an autograph session and a panel. So I said, if I'm free, I'll do it. I said, who else do I know? And I said, oh, Gene Lu Wen So I text Gene just to mention, and he answers right back. It's like, what? I got hold of Gene, because he's so busy. Yeah, right? so he's so busy. And meanwhile, Justin's like, oh, I'm not sure I don't know you work that much. I'm thinking, you're a rocket scientist. You can ask me a couple of questions. Come on. But you know, he's a big cosplayer, as well as Michelle, his wife. 
so that that's part of our community. You know, we're all in it together. And um, what's really sweet is when you see um, Tom cosplaying one of the series you worked on, like Ghost Rider. <laughs> okay, so we got to go. Got our time. Is that it? Thanks for listening, everyone. If you love this podcast, we have a lot more content over at freespeechgeek.com. We have upcoming convention coverage, news about your favorite weeb shit. We also do in-depth takes like, are some fans more religious than Christians, Jews, and Muslims? Spoiler alert, yes, some of you crazy people are. All that and more over at freespeechgeek.com. Go check it out, you psychopaths.